in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, sir? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. I'm excited about this movie. Ready to get into it. We've got a fun guest as well. I'm, feel, I'm feeling extra retro. I feel like the 80s just exudes more retro than other decades, and so we called in, we called in a pro Somebody who really can bring us the retro vibes of the 80s from the All 80s Movies Podcast, Mr. Jason Masick. How are you doing, sir? I am doing most excellent, Russell and Dustin. What a pleasure it is to be guest hosting on your podcast. Wow, you're propping me up here. I hope I deliver. I hope I I can bring the right stuff to your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, and so as one of the great authorities of the 80s, what made you want to do an All 80s Movies Podcast? Well, you know what? I'm going to give you a little bit of history, actually. My co-host and great friend, Bill Bant, and I, we go back to the University of Miami, Florida, where we were both film students in the, the mid to late 90s, actually. And then our uh, friendship uh, matured, and I'm grateful to say it became a working relationship after we had both moved out to the L.A. area. And, you know, we were part of a small independent production team working on some successful short films and then, you know, cut to... A few years later, we're just sitting around the table, uh, speaking of round table, having dinner, and all we do is talk about movies, right? And this is, you know, this is common amongst all of us film buffs, our, you know, community of movie nerds. And Bill said to me, hey, we should turn this into a podcast. And I have to give credit to another friend of ours uh, named Marwan, who planted a seed as well a few years back by listening to the growing trend of film podcasts at the time. And we started discussing the format, what our niche would be, and we landed on the 80s. To answer your your initial question, that decade, those were the formative years for us, which developed our fascination with filmmaking and the magic of movies, I mean, plainly said. And so now, you know, we look back each week to a different film of of the 80s, discuss our our earliest memories, our attachments, lasting effects, the nostalgia. And then, you know, we discuss how we interpret the films today. It's meant to be fun and a relatable process, and we hope that the people of our generation can really appreciate it. Uh, obviously, we do it for a lot of those listeners, but it's also nice to be able to inspire the younger generation or maybe the older generation to discover the movies of the 80s uh, for the very first time. I really enjoy doing movies from the 80s, and I think it's really cool that you can draw in and dive in and see connections from week to week by immersing yourself so deeply in the 80s. and. I got to say, you and Bill have a nice quality of uh, that camaraderie that you said you had there. It shows. You know, if you like the retro movie roundtable at all, I definitely would check out the All 80s Movies podcast. Now, this is a uh, this is a movie with a great ensemble cast. Now, Jason, what's a what's one of your favorite ensemble casts from a movie? Russell, uh, gentlemen, I love this question because there 
are so many great films out there with ensemble casts, great films, great television shows. And I have such an immense respect for any filmmaker that attempts the undertaking of make, you know, creating something with such a large cast because it's such a delicate balance. Uh, so from every aspect of filmmaking, uh, you really, really have to pay attention to uh, every actor and, and all the details. So regardless, uh, there are the usual suspects regarding films with ensemble casts uh, ranging from, you know, speaking of the 80s, The Big Chill, all the way to more recent films like Ocean's Eleven and beyond. That's a good one. Uh, but funny enough, uh, Bill and I on our pod were just doing Body Heat, and that is by our uh, one of my favorites, writer-director Lawrence Kasdan. And during our discussion of Body Heat, we came across Silverado, and that is my choice. Yeah. That's a great choice. That's a great Silverado, one. man. Yeah, right? I'm a fan of uh, Westerns to begin with, but this was one of the earlier films that I can remember that had a murderer's row of a cast. So I'm just going to list it off real quick if you'll indulge me. Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, Danny Glover, Brian Dennehy, Rosanna Arquette, John Cleese, Jeff Goldblum, Linda Hunt, Jeff Fahey, Richard Jenkins, and great character actor, Brian James. It's a lot of fun. I feel like neo-Westerns tend to be on the more serious side, and that one is just fun with a capital F. So we we, co- we covered that one here on this show, and it was yeah. a good it was a good time. So oh man, I've got to look back in your catalog. I'm on that episode. Yeah, you what got the yeah. Heck? Uh, I got to say, I believe Brian James was someone who caught my attention. My first ever episode of Retro Movie Roundtable was How Blade about Runner. That? And, uh, oh, yeah, of and course. So Blade Runner, I immediately saw Brian James again. Uh, absolutely great cast. Extremely entertaining. I love Kevin Costner in that as that young hot, hot shot gunslinger. And also, we got a little crossover here. A little with the crossover. Right stuff. That's right. With Scott Glenn and Jeff Goldblum. It's great stuff. That is, yes. The, the Pittsburgh's own Jeff Goldblum. He's, he's, he's awesome. Ah, there you go. Now, Dustin, what about you? What's an ensemble cast that just comes to the surface for you. The first thing I thought of was Ocean's Eleven, actually, but I'm going to go with Armageddon. Armageddon was probably the first, yeah. um, like, oh, look at everyone here. Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, Buscemi, uh, Peter Stormare, and then other Luke people Tyler? that I've liked in other things, too, like uh, Jason Isaacs is in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Will Patton. Uh, <laughs> Will Patton. Keith David, uh, incredible voice actor in like the later part of his career. Like all this, all these people. And then of course, Liv Tyler, that was kind of my introduction to her. So uh, Armageddon's my pick for this question. I just think the Lord of the Rings trilogy did an amazing job at their casting. They had literary characters that people knew and they just breathed life into them so well and uh, they all play together so well and went off of each other so well. So Lord of the Rings for me. Great choice. Now, what's the last movie you saw? It doesn't have to be in theaters, but just in general. Jason. I just watched The French Dispatch the other night, and it was an interesting watch. I, I was watching it with a, an older gentleman, a good friend of mine, and uh, it was, you know, sometimes the viewing experience is affected, obviously, by w- with whom you watch the movie. And I think he was trying to make heads or tails of it. Sometimes Wes Anderson, it's, it's a particular taste. And my review is basically, I, I liked it. I respect it. I don't love it. But that's just my opinion. Uh, from a storytelling perspective, I found some of it engaging and engrossing, but not all of it. I am a fan of Wes Anderson. I think he's a true auteur. And from the artistic perspective, you know, without a doubt, I mean, the set design, production, design, frame, composition, movement, 
the the dialogue. I mean, it's it's unassailable. It's undeniably smart stuff. And it made me realize that I need to go back in his filmography and really do a little more work. I got to watch a lot more of his films in their entirety, not just bits and pieces. And lastly, I'll just say I'm a huge, huge Bottle Rocket fan. Uh, so I think with uh, Wes Anderson, it's nice to know that when you revisit his stuff, you can also just say you're revisiting good movies instead of just, well, it's on the list, so I have to watch it. Dustin, what was your last movie? I wanted to listen to an episode of the All Ladies Movies podcast, so I watched The Breakfast Club, which I had seen a bunch of times. I think my introduction to it was sometime in the 90s, like on TBS, um, but it's, it's one that I've seen a dozen times and uh, just a masterpiece. I love that movie, despite its disturbing lack of breakfast in the movie. There it is. There it is. Uh, And uh, my last movie that I saw was Lawless from 2012. And um, Jessica Chastain just recently won Best Actress Award. And I had recently seen um, uh, her her role as Tammy Faye. And so uh, this is one that I had missed from her catalog. I'm a fan of her. So I just went back up and picked this one up. Great cast. I like the world that they put you in. I can't say the journey they take you on is as good as the world that they put you in, but... Uh, there's some good things here, too. So Today, Dustin, what movie are we going to do? The Right Stuff from 1983. Oh, oh, we, oh. Oh, oh, we, oh. Yikes, of course. Of course. The you Right Stuff. Amazing. I had to. I couldn't get through the whole episode. Oh. But, I'm uh, not mad at you. I'm glad we got it out of the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Russell. <laughs> the Right Stuff stars Charles Frank, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Lance Henriksen, uh, barely any Lance Henriksen, uh, Scott Pauline, Dennis Quaid, Sam Shepard, Fred Ward, Kim Staley, Barbara Hershey, Veronica Cartwright, and Pamela Reed. It's a loaded cast of people, but at the time there aren't necessarily a lot of people who are well known from it. It comes out in 1983. It's budgeted for $27 million. It only grosses $21.1 million domestically. That is less money than it was made. That is... It's international grossings, it's rentals, and it's other things go on to make it money, so it's not a total, total flop, but it is a disappointment given what they put into it. It places at 33 on the box office that year. It comes in behind Class and ahead of Cujo. And the number one movie from 1983 was Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. IMDb gives the right stuff a 7.8. That seems low. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it. They give it a 96%. And then an audience score of 90%. And so the Rotten Tomatoes crew is liking it a lot more. It is an Academy Award winner four times for Best Film Editing, Original Score, Sound, and Sound Effects Editing. And it's nominated for four more Oscars for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Art Direction, and Best Cinematography. And it is a Golden Globes nominee for Best Motion Picture Drama. So Jason, tell people at home, was this your first time with the right stuff? What was your introduction to it and how did it go down for you? Um, Gosh. You know, this was not my first time seeing this film. I have seen it several times. And first off, I just wanted to ask you both, is there enough testosterone in this movie? Is there enough? (laughs) It does not Uh, pass the Bechdel test. I can... (laughs) What I can say is that uh, I I don't recall seeing it in the theater, but most likely it was a cable watch. Uh, I must have been anywhere from 12 to 14 years old. I know I enjoyed it partially because I watched it with my dad, who was a pilot in the Air Force. He actually trained on the T-38 Talon. He flew the C-130 Herkybird carriers in Vietnam. And also, I just had a fascination with the space program as a kid. But it was a three-hour movie. 
And although I appreciated the historical significance, it was just damn tough to beat out that Star Wars or Indiana Jones franchise from an entertainment standpoint. You know, as a kid, I just wanted laser blasters and lightsabers and adventures seeking treasure. It's hard uh, to beat laser blasters. I, I see right? what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I most likely haven't seen it in its entirety for at least, gosh, probably 10 to 15 years. I know I've seen different sequences at different points more recently than that, however. I've remembered so much from this film, lines of dialogue, certain shots, cuts. It was, I mean, it was great. I obviously have an affinity and attachment to this movie because I, for a over three hour long running time, I remembered most of it. Well, and uh, Dustin, how about you? What was your background with this one? Listeners of the podcast will know that there was no chance that I had actually seen this movie before. But that's every movie that we do. I've never seen these. So my first watch of it was two days ago. I saw the runtime, and I thought to myself, do I need to split this up into two viewings to actually enjoy it, or do I just power all the way through? And I powered all the way through. Uh, and it, the, the movie made it easy for me to do that. When I have the opportunity to watch something new, I try to learn as little about it as I possibly can. That being said, in conversation, I brought up that like, yeah, you know, for the podcast, I'm about to do the right stuff. And I think we all have those friends. Uh, Jason, you mentioned that your dad was a pilot, but we all have those friends who were like super interested in space, had a couple of college buddies who it was essentially, no, I'm, I'm going to work for NASA or this was all been a waste of time. So a couple of buds that are living in Florida, you know, working in NASA, now living in Texas, I've got a, a bunch of buddies who, uh, you know, you can't walk down the street 10 feet without meeting someone from Houston. And it's such a big cultural thing here in Texas to be proud of the space program. So when I'm bringing up this movie, there are some people that say, oh, yeah, love it. Maybe one of my top 10 favorite movies. Um, and so I'd have to tell them, well, don't tell me anything about it yet. Let me watch it and record on the podcast. Then we'll talk about it later. All I heard were good things. And that was my experience were good things with the right stuff. And for me, I'm actually going to join you on this one. It's not a uh, movie that I had seen before, and I, I wasn't sure what to get into. I admittedly will say the long run time and just the biographical kind of true story kind of thing. I didn't dive into it. I, I was aware of it being out there, but I never came to it. And this is one of those cool things. The, the pick came our way, and I, I picked it up, and it was so good. I just said, wow, this is, I don't, I can't feel bad. I just, I've turned it down more than once and just partially because of the runtime. And um, I wish I had given it its due sooner because this is a very good movie. It's something that covers such a broad range of emotions and, and, and spectrums that um, it's, it's doing a lot of things at one time. And I think that an epic movie has the framework to be able to do that. And if it wasn't so long, it couldn't do that. So Yeah, it I, better. For yeah. 193 <laughs> minutes, it better cover all of those. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask real quick, um, even just bringing up the, na the name of the movie, the right stuff, I almost thought, like, is this the best name for it? It didn't seem to fit with me when I was going into it. I guess, yeah, the movie does explain what it is. But do you guys think the right stuff is like the appropriate title for this movie? For oh, like, that's, a good, that's a good question. I would have completely passed it up. I almost feel as if it needed some type of more um, like nonfiction style title or something yeah. like that. Did like, that cross One your of mind? these days, right to the moon. <laughs> right to the moon. <laughs> that's an excellent question I hadn't even thought of. And of course, 
you know, I've known this or uh, this movie or about this movie for, gosh, a couple decades here, a few decades. And so I only associate this title with this movie. Uh -huh. But now I'm trying to come up with alternate titles. And it's a great question. And it makes sense. Um, right. Like I'm thinking, to why wouldn't you like, just call it Mercury 7 or. Right. Uh, the, I'd, I'd love this, that. Uh, Demon in the Sky. That's cool. Oh my too. god, that's a great that's a great title. Yeah. Aboriginal Fireflies. Phrase. Who knows what it could be? But it almost <laughs> seems as if this doesn't like the, the title doesn't fit. I'm not knocking the movie for it, but I think it's maybe one of the reasons I had missed it. Uh was was it just didn't really fit. Yeah. Um, now I don't want it to swing the other way. Like I don't want Space Cowboys. Now we got yeah, mm. Jason mentioned the testosterone in this movie. I also I don't want Top Gun. It almost seems as if it was mistitled or something. That's a very good point. And perhaps it would have made millions more dollars with a better yeah. time. So, you know, I, yeah, and we did, we, we did talk about that, but we were going to get into a lot more here after the other side of the break. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So please check out the right stuff. And then we'll be back after these messages. Welcome to the all eighties movies podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And Dustin, for those who haven't seen The Right Stuff since 1983, do you want to refresh people's memory? This is the story about the first American astronauts, but it takes us a little while to get there. We focus first on Edwards Air Force Base, where Chuck Yeager and other test pilots push the envelope on what is humanly possible, chasing that demon in the sky to break the sound barrier. Once that goal is hit, these men aim their sights higher, farther, and faster. It is a place that attracts those who are willing to volunteer to advance tech, science, and public opinion in the years following the Second World War. From this group, we meet Gordo, Gus, and Deke, along with pilots from the other armed services, John, Alan, Scott, and Wally. Through rigorous physical and mental testing, our Mercury 7 astronauts are selected to much fanfare, as pressure from the top brass politically and the competing Russians spins into a media frenzy to get into space. The monkey is sent up first, but then the cosmonauts send up a manned rocket. We push to get a man in orbit as Jeff Goldblum and a cavalcade of German scientists assist to keep America ahead of the game. Our focus turns to the personal lives of these men and their pressures with their families and their wives. As one of our first astronauts breaches the atmosphere, attempt to keep their home lives afloat, form a camaraderie that had never before been dramatized on film about the Mercury 7. Upon the relocation from Cape Canaveral to Houston, the media hype by Texas's own LBJ concludes as we send the last solo man to orbit the Earth, while Chuck and the Earth-bound pilots of yesteryear continue to revel in their own speed contributions as progress marches on. Yeah, yeah. So this covers this wow. covers an enormous time span. Jason, what was your take and 
just how this story is being told. Like, we're covering a lot. Like, it's not just the sound barrier. It's not just going to space. It's not just, you know, this, this movie is covering everything. How did you determine what's in and what's out? Wow. Uh, great question. You know, I thought the screenplay was really smart. You know, it's interesting because now as an adult, I'm watching this and I want to know actually more of the science and a bit more of the personal drama that uh, some of these men had to endure, that their families had to endure. But interestingly enough, I you know, is three hours even long enough to cover what they had to cover in this? And that's just, it's so much. And I thought that one, the, some of the things that I crave now as an adult might be better served in a series, which funny enough, we have the right stuff now in Disney Plus. But then even number two, I'm not sure that some of these things that I want, these minute details or things that I'm interested in as an adult would have been as interesting or stimulating in this format, in a feature film format as a visual meeting and have to cover, like you said, such an expanse of time and history. And, you know, if you were only focusing on one aspect of the story, one man or woman or relationship or scientific aspect, maybe that would make it inter something interesting for a smaller film. But this is the, an epic feature. And for this type of grand scope, you've got to keep things moving. And I thought Philip Kaufman did a great job. I mean, my point is with the screenplay, I think at times some of it does sound a bit simplified. I would not go as far as to say that it was dumbed down for the audience, but it is definitely made more palatable. And there is some comic relief in there. There's humorous moments. There are characters that fulfill that comic relief role. But I can't fault Kaufman for that. This has to be uh, serve an entertainment purpose. I think, you know, if I had to nitpick, uh, my issue might be that some of the quote unquote on the ground scenes felt a little bit drawn out. They're very important scenes and established perspective, emotion, time period. But some of the actual shots, in my humblest of opinions, could have been trimmed. But that's really nitpicking. I think this is based on Thomas Wolfe's novel, and I've never read the book. Uh, but from some of the research, it sounds like they stayed somewhat close, which is impressive. So not only are you covering such a huge time period, but now this is basically an adapted screenplay, correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, he Wolf wasn't that happy with the results of the movie, unfortunately, but uh, perhaps to each their own because the Mercury 7 didn't love his book and therefore they didn't love this movie either. So uh, the more times you take it away from the reality, the, the, the more discontented they became. But, uh, you know, it... You're telling you're making a movie. We've had this conversation before, like Braveheart when we did that movie. Nothing's accurate, but it's an interesting movie. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make these characters likable for the time frame that they're in the movie. To your point, Jason, and uh, it is a lot to take on. So absolutely, yeah. You're, they're going to have to take some liberties. There's going to be some dramatic license taken here, and you know the entire Chuck Yeager storyline was almost not in this. I mean, you had William Goldman, one of our best screenwriters in the history of cinema, penned the original screenplay, and then Chuck Yeager wasn't even in, in, in the story. So now we have this, which uh, Philip Kaufman gave us, which obviously very much incorporates the Chuck Yeager storyline. And, and for me, in my opinion, is uh, one of the most attractive things about the movie, actually. I have, but, to, uh, I have to agree with you there completely, <laughs> yeah. is that now... Before the break, we did mention a couple times the, the, the runtime. 
And I, I think without the Chuck Yeager part of it, I mean, I think, I think, if I remember as I was watching two days ago, I think it's 58 minutes before we even make the pivot to the word astronaut. Like, you, you would think we're two thirds of the way through a plane movie, through a, a fighter jet movie. Yeah, right. And, and right. then, and then, and it's not uncomfortable, but it's just sort of like whirlwind. And now we're going to start a new movie in the middle of this one <laughs> about right. picking astronauts from test pilots. And that, and we do see a little bit of the decision to do that with Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum's characters, the recruiters, uh, and talking to sort of the dark room of whether that's the Joint Chiefs or the top brass, whatever it is. So we, we do kind of like make that pivot pretty late. But I, I think I respect the decision to keep it all. You know, we've on this podcast, we've talked about like the amount of money that's spent on stuff that ends up being cut, throwback to the Little Shop of Horrors episode and the alternate ending. But when we think of the decision to just keep it all, keep it all. No, there's no director's cut. This is it. You get it all. Right. I it think does that's feel like a director's brave. cut. <laughs> it <laughs> does. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Th but there is no gonna... shorter version of this. You get it all. And and luckily you don't get bored during it. You 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 don't feel I don't I don't remember feeling much of a fatigue. I think this movie wanted to be a trilogy. I think I think Hollywood would have hated me because they didn't make enough money on this one to make two more. But I think it would have been really interesting to have a very strong Chuck Yeager focus in the first movie and to go to the Mercury 7 in the second movie. And to your point, Jason, I feel like there's much of the story. They give you a, a paragraph at the end of this where we lose Gus Grissom in space. Right. That's right. a tragedy that I feel like as in, I've become so invested in these characters. I feel like I need to feel that. We have established that this hmm. is a dangerous thing. This movie opens up on, on a wife being told, we're sorry, your husband didn't make it. This is dangerous stuff. And I think feeling that loss is, is a strong blow that we should face. And furthermore, I think there should be a third movie where the space race in many ways, at least as from our American standpoint, is culminates in going to the moon. And I would like to see the going to the moon part of the story that we don't see here. And I think that's enough for three movies, three stout movies, I might add. And I think that the Chuck Yeager character can make appearances in these other things. And I think that the world should all connect in with each other. But I think a more ambitious, uh, which this was super ambitious, but I, I think you could be more expansive is my point. Well, and the camera loves Sam Shepard. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, it, I can't wait to talk about that. Oh, my goodness. It, it was returning to how the movie started. Russell, you mentioned that like we, we have to understand how dangerous this is or the ambition of these men. And I'm saying men in this context because this at this time period and the focus of the movies is the men who make these decisions and they are accompanied by their wives. And I mean, the kids are ba barely in this at all. So it is just sort of focusing on the ambition of men uh, to break records. Every time a record's broke, Chuck Yeager's going to go back up there and do it again. We're, it's almost a frame story where, all right, well, after this astronaut stuff happens, after the space race takes off, uh, we do get from his other captain friend, the one who's always there with a stick of gum. Uh, to, Ridley, to yeah. Ridley, thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're there to, to see him take off in a jet one final time. Um, I mean, we were talking a little bit about trimming, but we almost could have just had him take off and had the movie fade away. Now, uh, Ru Russell, you said that, like, yeah, we get that little voiceover paragraph by our narrator about, 
Well, and then Gus died in fire. Uh, wow, it was almost abrupt. Yeah. And then credit But it's still a very happy tone, too, like with the Patreon. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, and by the way, Gus died. It's a str- that I can also agree with. It's a strange way to put a, put a period on this movie. It's a really, it's a little bit emotionally all over the place. And I was like, okay, so now we yeah. just go watch <laughs> From the Earth to the Moon, I guess. The Tom Hay, the you know, which is on HBO right now, which is great, but... It's like what you're just going to leave us with that? Where do we go? What do we? What am I supposed to do with that? Where I do have I go an answer to that. Where I'm do not we go done. I'm, that? I will block out another hour. I'll stay here for a fourth hour. You you come back yeah. and you finish this. <laughs> I think there's something wonderful about us, about how the movie holds up, and about us in um, dating the podcast in 2022. I love the idea that what's next for us? Spending two hours last night reading about every astronaut. That's oh, what I'm doing. Wow. Is true, I, I, yeah. I want it, I want now, you know, in 1983, I mean, shoot, just, you know, 15 years ago, we didn't have the access to just pull up all this stuff at once. But, and as we mentioned, there's now a series out about this, but I spent a significant amount of time learning about this stuff and it's great. <laughs> the more, you know, you can't cut the Chuck Yeager part out of this though. Kaufman yeah, is no. right because this is a movie that has two very separate themes going on. You have the Maverick with, with. Chuck Yeager, this guy who, you know, clearly wishes to be at the top of the pyramid. He wants to go to space and he he can't necessarily go, but he he turns down like somebody wants all this money and he even turns down more money just just to do it. He just flies, he just does it. And the real Chuck Yeager said he liked Sam Shepard's performance here. He said it was like how he flew. He just was effortless. He just did it, not flamboyant. And that that maverick component of this being juxtaposed with they wanted to build a team that they could kind of not necessarily control, but they wanted to they wanted to tell them how it was going to go. And that team pushes back in the end, saying, we're yeah. not just monkeys. We want a window. We want a hatch. You know, we're people, and I want some authorship of what I'm doing. I don't, I don't just happen to be writing in a metal box. But uh, Chuck Yeager is, uh, you know, he is the one that Kaufman says had the right stuff. He was the one who was really pushing the envelope and, you know, as the movie portrays at the end, uh, to the absolute limits uh, with great courage. And um, it's not to take away from the Mercury 7, but that individual who, that, that that's kind of America. Ron Howard said that in America... The system will achieve all this, but it also gives room in there for the individual to do great things. That is what is so cool about America. So you have room for Chuck Yeager to be a maverick. And then also the system can work together and still do what they did with the Mercury 7. And telling those two stories in parallel is telling two different aspects of what makes America and the space program so cool. Yeah, really, really well said. Great points all around, guys. Uh, I've got a lot to say about all of that we don't have all day but uh yeah I, like you said that's the the genius i think of this screenplay is having these two stories running concurrently and then editing back and forth it's no wonder why this movie won four academy awards one of them being editing and to to be able to to that walk that fine line and that tricky balance of giving enough attention to all of these wonderful cast members and now as an adult i mean gosh i mean sam shepherd as chuck yeager just stands out so much but I love the fact that you talk about doing you know, two hours of research on each of these pilots and astronauts. I look up Chuck Yeager. Just do it in the research. But Thomas Wolfe was trying to say in his book, too, is 
and this comes down to the title, The Right Stuff, is what what makes these men tick? What? It, why is it they do what they do? What is their drive to take such risks? And what is the toll that that takes? They feel because the it, need, the, the need, need for, for speed. Yeah, speaking of Mavericks. Well, and it's that uh, <laughs> it's that demon in the sky is what we get for the first 30, maybe 40 minutes of it, is that there's something out there that we're chasing. Then very quickly we are shown that like that record stands for a hot second before it's broken. Right. I do appreciate that there are some movies that focus on, we did it, we did the one good thing, and we all cheer, freeze frame, and it's done. But then, no, th- that record won't stand. Now we're going for two. Well, it's actually not two. It's not Mach 2. It's actually Mach 2.3. Your Mach meter is going to read a little differently. And and so we are pushing not just the envelope, but that the, we're moving the goalposts. We, now we need to get to space. Well, now we need to put a man in orbit. This vanity of these test pilots, but the other people like them, uh, we feel like these would be the good candidates for us to group together and send them up, even though we're calling them pilots, but originally they're they're not supposed to actually fly anything. I mean, Russell, like, we're not here to fix the movie, but the idea that it's a trilogy of you start with the uh, maybe land speed, then air speed, then you move to space, and then you move... Uh, to uh, you know, to the moon. I think that'd be perfect. Absolutely, and we touched on it, but it's funny. Like it, it's so enjoyable it to sit through. It's so enjoyable to sit through. Uh, the adrenaline cannot sustain a three-hour movie because, like, there's definitely some very tense moments. I think the Jaeger scenes, to me, and the fighter jet uh, are just absolutely gripping. Uh, when Gus Grissom's, you know, kind of reentry doesn't go very well, and you're also pretty worried for what's going to happen to John Glenn. You kind of know what's going to happen, but it doesn't take away the edge of the tension of the moment. And that's because they did a good job by telling you the story through the wives that there's so much danger involved. You just, you, you appreciate their bravery as they're doing it. And that makes the movie so gripping. But that can't sustain a three-hour movie. The humor, to me, is what keeps you coming back over and over again, quoting it, thinking about it, and what will pull you through this three-hour movie and is a very good bridge between these moments of action. Even the historical just conversations like, our Germans are better than their Germans, or, you know, watching Henry Shearer and, uh, sorry, Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum recruit the Mercury 7. This is funny. Like, I right, mean, it's there's, comical. There's, yeah. there's laugh-out-loud moments here, and it's... Uh, that's a big component to the enjoyment and what makes you stay seated throughout this movie because it could get dry otherwise. I almost feel as if the um, the Chuck Yeager, uh, Edwards Air Base scenes have far less comedy than when we get the group of guys together. Almost a tonal shift between when we're in this part where the back of the bar is of fallen fighter pilots. You know, the only way to get on the wall is to die. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I, I think the comedy really comes in once the director tells you, all right, an hour in, time to start a new movie to keep you interested for this part. It's going to be funnier, which it is. To see a young uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, you know, we mentioned Silverado earlier with the young Costner, and th- to see these actors who I had known for being more like middle-aged roles, to see them so young, uh, I mean, he's comedic. Uh, they're all, the, the, the scenarios, once we get the entire astronaut team together, I think is much more comedic. We return back to Earth figuratively 
and much less comedic when it comes to Jaeger and his scenes. He's, uh, that that's just no, in that, retrospect. That's right a now. great. That's a, that's a great observation. Notion, yeah. That's a great take. I I couldn't agree more. And I give again so much credit to because we're talking about the different elements of the filmmaking process here. And Phil Kaufman in his directorial efforts here and the performance of Sam Shepard in particular with his storyline playing Chuck Yeager, just the gravitas that he carries. And I love it when a director allows the actor to, uh, and the actors look just in a look to do all the talking. There's, this is not overwritten. And most of that storyline that carries such weight, the Chuck Yeager storyline, where it's like, he's just risking his life every time he goes up in a jet, a rocket powered jet, by the way, it's all in his face. It says everything. And he's very understated. He gives an understated performance. And it's interesting when you talk about how then you have the camaraderie and the, the group aspect with the Mercury 7, and there's a little bit more levity and a little bit of comic relief there. And then you have these relationships developing and and you get involved and you want to be, you, you, uh, you start getting invested in those characters. It's great, but then to juxtapose that with this like kind of this lone uh, adventurer, this flight jock kind of going on his own path, it's a great juxtaposition. And then you see because of that the Mercury Seven are going through such the a lot of that comic relief. I think you alluded to Russell comes from how they're looked at as kind of a joke in the beginning. They're not actually going into space yet. The monkey goes up before them. But they're, they're just encountering issues. They don't have a lot of control. And along with them, you get the test pilots back at, you know, with Chuck Yeager back at Edwards, kind of making fun of them. But as soon as those astronauts start going up, when Alan Shepard goes up and then Grissom goes up, and one of my favorite moments is when then you cut back to uh, Sam Shepard and they find a newfound respect for these guys that are actually taking the risks because it's really happening at that point. It's it's a real credit to the writing and that balance and the back and forth between the storylines. It's a, yeah. like a game-recognized game. It, mm-hmm. uh, it, yeah. Listening to the radio and they're, they're thinking to themselves like, oh, they're, they're having all their fun, those monkeys. And then you see it on screen, the respect, you know, fill them uh, as they're listening. And, and I think that's led by Shepard's performance. That was Agreed. that was definitely a great moment for the film. In a movie that's chock full of great moments. For all the times we said that this movie could have gone on longer, there's a lot of times when you could have ended it, too. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, because it's based on something that, ha- that actually happened. Um, we could read, we already knew what happened. We know that this is history. Um, but uh, even in my plot summary, I-, I had to respect the interactions between the men chosen uh and let's let's maybe just focus off the men for just a quick second the the wives and i'm calling them Absolutely. wives because it's kind of all they are in this movie but um i think just the right attention uh, as far as more attention needs to be on their struggles had this movie been more cheery or positive throughout i think i would have liked it less i need despair i i need tension and and this movie provides it to allow your emotions to kind of roller coaster a little bit. You mean you don't want to watch three hours of guys masturbating while humming over top of each other in <laughs> alternating stalls? You act as if I don't do that every couple of days. But uh, <laughs> it, like yeah, that that comedy is great. But yeah, you really do need to see the um, the the turmoil, the the inner like inside the cookie cutter house turmoil, uh, and and we get just the right amount. 
And that right amount was when she said, you need to bring your wife in. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Nur- nurse merch. <laughs> nurse merch is like, nurse merch. Oh, right. <laughs> Smoke when she, when she, show. When she tells Gordon Cooper, "I'm going to need to meet your wife," because <laughs> he's he he is he has been uh, super harassy and not nice to this poor nurse who's just trying to do her job, and uh, she definitely calls his bluff and like kind of says like I'm gonna need to meet your wife and like I loved I loved seeing that trump card that was one of those very humorous moments of like <laughs> that is fun. that is a very funny way to put somebody in their place no question yeah take them down a notch there I think uh, it was also a candidate for my shot of the movie when you see like his reflection in nurse merch's glasses as she stands up lording over him bring your wife in <laughs> yeah the, the 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 training sessions where they make you claustrophobic and like run sirens to make you flip out and the other guys are losing their cool and he's sleeping through it the thing he's most afraid of is his angry wife <laughs> mm. but uh you're right, though. Um, the, the the component of what the wives do, they humanize each of the male characters. In today's standards, the wives are there in order to develop the male character specifically. So they're not necessarily standing on their own as characters. Hmm, but yeah. what, what they do is still very important in this. I mean, Barbara Hershey's character, I think those are some great scenes that she shares with Chuck Yeager. Like, I, like, I don't want to just be with some has-been and, like, you know, going around talking about the past. And and she she's a bit of a maverick herself. You can see why she's his riding partner on on the horses. And, like, this is part of who Chuck is through this character. Similarly with John Glenn and his wife, there's a real warm character in there. And, you know, his political nature comes through so much. But what humanizes him is how much he cares so much for his wife. She's, she has anxiety that she's going to be interviewed on TV and he won't let the vice president come in, even though, even though he's put under great pressure and a hilarious scene where they painted uh, Lyndon Johnson out to be a goofball. Um, oh, yeah. I, I just uh, I think that that was such a funny scene, though. But also at the same time, it was very tender as well to see those two there. And um, the danger of the movie is really pursued through Trudy Cooper. And, Thank you. Very, and, oh, yeah, and, absolutely. I was just going to mention her. Yep. She was just so good at conveying what damages is that any day now uh, her children's dad may just be gone. And she said, like, nobody ever says that one in four chance you might not come back. What is it that makes these guys wired like this? Yeah, I, you know, Russell, you just led me right into the, I want to go back to Pamela Reed as Trudy Cooper. Uh, because that's such a wonderful scene and it ties into what Dustin was saying about that balance and showing uh, what the wives' roles were at this time. I think it's also a sign of the times if you want to talk about female characters in movies. and oh, But just wives of pilots in particular, uh, I could talk about my parents in particular, about how my mom was the stay-at-home mom and she had to take care of myself and my sister and she was really tough while my dad was out there flying and he was putting the food on the table. But he was out there taking risks and it took an emotional toll on her and she tried to put on a good face, but we could say, but regardless, getting back to what you're saying, Russell, about, you know, what is the right stuff and what does that mean? And, you know, it's apparent that these men are consumed by this deep visceral passion as if it's, they're almost possessed, right? They're obsessed beyond committed to this chasing the demon, right? It will always be their first love, no matter the cost, which meant, you know, not only potentially sacrificing their family, 
or their time with their family or being there as a father, a husband. But ultimately, for some, it meant paying the ultimate price. Do you have the right stuff to actually continue taking those risks, pushing the outside of the envelope, right? And that's why we're yeah. here now, whether, you know, I am not a fighter jock nor an astronaut. I, watching this as an adult, though, I do have a better appreciation for what these men endured and what their loved ones endured. And I now have a better understanding of what my dad's love for flying meant. It was his everything. I can't undersell that. I can't give it enough due. He always said he was lucky because he got to do something he loved every day and he was getting paid for it. But he would do it even if he didn't get paid for it, just like Jaeger did. You see Sam Shepard talk about that in the early, I mean, what, he's getting paid 283 bucks a month right. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't give a crap about the money. So I see that same passion like I saw in my dad. I still see in my dad when he talks about flying and, and, and flying in, in Vietnam, et cetera. I see that same passion in these characters. And now I have a better understanding of, oh, that's what it takes. It's good that this movie's here. And I think it's holding up very well because in an age where Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson are who goes to space and how normalizing yeah, space yeah. travel is, we are on the precipice of space travel becoming the next yacht if you will, like of like that's the thing that the rich guys will do. Who knows? Families may take vacations to space station resorts and stuff in the in the future. It's nice to have Lost these little isolated moments. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice to have these little isolated moments that remind you of how unknown and how scary it was. The right stuff comes with a cost. Now you mentioned the ultimate price, but the cost to these women at home, the kids. Uh, right. The constant fear. I, I thought that was important. Uh, it, in reference to your dad's passion of flying, it, it does make me think about like my friends who said, I'm going to work for NASA. I want mm -hmm. to help us go to space. Somebody said, I'm going to get to Mars. I'm going to do that. And Chuck Yeager said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase that demon. And there are, there are people who said, like your dad, I'm a man, but I want to fly. And to reach these goals is possible. Um, I sometimes think about the astounding reaches that humanity has hit. And while you know, we mentioned like Lord of the Rings, fantasy and adventure can be its own thing. But we as humans, we as Americans have done stuff that was once thought wild imagination and a, a movie to put it together like this it, it can't all be perfect it can, you have to show the cost that fine balance between the 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 chase the for discovery exploration what's out there and then you know at, but at what cost and i love that scene with there you got what is it Cooper and Deke Slayton and Grissom all grilling out in the yard and they're looking across the way and they actually see Chuck Yeager and his family and they're kind of staring back and forth from a distance, but looking at, at a jet flying over and they're laughing and t telling stories. And meanwhile, you have the wives and Trudy Cooper, who's literally suffering inside. This is all in one scene. Yeah. Talk about well done for, from storytelling aspect, just showing all aspects in one scene, covering so much. And Trudy breaks down in a wonderful acting moment by Pamela Reed. I mean, she literally... Just talk right. about like really on the button with uh, 
Gordon Cooper holding up the hot dog. His nickname is Hot Dog. Hot Dog, yeah. And he holds up a burning hot dog and shows it to his wife, who's losing her mind because that's the vision of what could be. Earlier I mentioned that the astronauts didn't necessarily like the movie. They were necessarily, a lot of them were nicer to the actors who were playing them. Uh, You know, Scott Glenn uh, initially... um, considered for the role of Chuck Yeager, uh, mentioned that he wanted to do Alan Shepard and said he chose not to meet Alan Shepard, whereas most of the other actors chose to meet their real-life counterparts, and he just took an observation of his nuances by watching him in interviews and talking to other people. And uh, Shepard wrote that, uh, you, know, you know, Scott Glenn's performance was just spot on and, you know, was really just nailed this, aside from not being as good-looking as he was. And... <laughs> and and Dennis Quaid, um, you know, the producers discouraged the cast from, you know, uh, con- con- connecting with the real people. But Dennis Quaid reached out to Gordon Cooper and learned that, uh, you know, that they had lived a few miles from each other. And they became friends and they, uh, you know, uh, encouraged each other back and forth. And Quaid ended up getting his pilot's license and learned to fly in order to find that rush that you're talking about there, Jason. And so it's really interesting when you're doing a biopic, but if you're doing it of somebody who's alive... It does present a very interesting opportunity. It's a lot to live up to because that person can literally walk into, you know, I mean, Chuck Yeager was still walking into like Letterman, you know, in, in the 80s off the heels of this movie. You're being compared to a real life walking, talking guy. And um, yeah, true blue it's, American it's, hero. Correct. And so that's quite a bit different than like when we covered Amadeus and you're playing Mozart, you know, it's, it's a larger than life character and that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. But here... It's a tough road to hoe because these guys are recorded on video in this time and they are, and many people who were watching this movies at the time, in people's memory banks. And so you have to live up to somebody. I think that's a difficult thing. Like when Jesse Eisenberg did like Mark Zuckerberg or whenever mm-hmm. like, you know, um, uh, Hey, throwback, take... throwback to stand and deliver when uh, almost yep. did Jaime Escalante. Like it's... Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, that's a difficult task as an actor but it's also a really intriguing prospect. I think that would be a neat job as an actor to go in and do that. And so just to, I thought that was an interesting thing. And uh, Lance Henriksen, just, I mentioned it before. What, why do you get such a good actor? And like, you know, it's like the Mercury six and a half. For, for Criminally underused. I know. Underused. I, I expected at any point, like, are they just not putting him in this movie because he's afraid that his head's going to, like, you know, pop off and, like, uh, spray milk all over the place with noodles on the floor? I was going to say, come on, it's Bishop. Come on. Yeah. I, <laughs> although, I love the, the although, Aliens another connection. Although another yeah. Aliens connection that I kept thinking of, like, Chuck Yeager wants to go to space pretty bad in this. I keep expecting him to pop out of the backseat of, like, while well, Alan Shepard's going up and, like, have him pop out and be, like, <laughs> have him pop out from the backseat. It's like... Like, you got any Beemans? Yeah, you got any gum? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, one giant advertisement for Beemans chewing gum. I love it. <laughs> uh, they, and they were paid handsomely because everybody's chewing Beemans now. <laughs> yeah, Beemans is riding that gravy train, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what do you think? Okay, so Kaufman had a, we talked about this. It's a big story to tell. Did you like these chapters? Like, they literally take black screen, white text, and they're covering a lot of time. Did you like how this movie was divided up and how the story was told, Jason? I did. I love the concurrent uh, storylines like we've covered, I think, pretty well at this point. You know, the big, the, what are the big events? And uh, I think they covered them well. I thought they were thorough. Uh, you know, to get the dates, to give it some perspective. This day, I love, uh, 
all the timestamps, because when you're going back to 1947 and you're dealing with Chuck Yeager and, and just kind of the origins of this, which I think is very important that they incorporated that for another reason, because you've got to give it a match. Where did this start? How long things took to develop? Uh, it gives you more of an appreciation. And I think from a storytelling aspect, it, as an audience member, you become more invested when you realize the expanse of time. And I find it helpful too. Yeah, and you're changing location as well. And yeah, uh, I, I I gotta say that they did a great job of taking the danger of the exp space exploration and then pivoting to the space race of the danger of letting this foreign entity who's a fearful like Russia getting there before us and controlling space again. Uh, it wasn't just at the time a matter of who could do it first. It was a real fear of who could control that frontier, what, what would come from that. And that was put into this movie. And Kaufman wanted to make sure that this movie didn't go into, you know, unabashed patriotism. He was brought on. And as you mentioned earlier, there, there was a uh, William Goldman uh, had been hired by the producers to write the screenplay. And he took out not only did he take Jaeger out, but there was a strong focus on the group and through how great America is and patriotism. Kaufman, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Patriotism. And he didn't want to make a film entirely about astronauts. He thought Jaeger was the one who truly had the right stuff and that he went back and he wrote the script and ended up being the director. Uh, it, he did not want that emphasis on patriotism in his version. And he put that Jaeger part back in the film and he thought that it was about the men and not so much about the system. We are shown the things about the system that are negative. We're shown the invasive nature of the media. Um, we're shown yeah. the pressure and like the smoky back rooms of both the political side and also um, Life magazine uh, about the deal. The guy tells a man to his face that his name isn't good enough for the story. Uh, I, th I think the the things that are systemic are kind of shown to... Uh, maybe not the, the thing that we're rooting for. Like we're not rooting for the stars and stripes where we're, we're seeing that like, Oh man, all these extra pressures are actually part of the system itself. And they, they demystified mm -hmm, the fact mm -hmm. that they were Germans who had come to America and to Russia to run both of these space programs. You know, that wasn't like a, Hey, look at America. You know, I mean, you know, Our Germans are better than their Germans. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a funny line, but it's also a telling point, you know? So, uh, it's, I, I got to say, Kaufman had a good eye to the movie's pretty. I mean, oh my goodness! I, I, I forgot yes. that we were watching a movie made in 1983. It, it is it's stylish like a 70s movie, and and uh, it, it's artistically presented like a 70s movie. But on the other hand, I feel like gra like graphically, what I'm looking at, and just I feel like this is a newer movie than it is. I don't feel like I'm watching models. Of spacecraft no way at all no way and it looks better than cgi of the 90s or or o's in many cases these are models that they're using yeah. for this stuff and they use real sky backgrounds a lot of the times they would mix chemicals up and like mr wizard chemicals and like blow them over across that or move these models on like on um real fast in front of the camera and it's amazing to me this movie does not feel cheap it does not feel like you're all of a sudden watching Team America, you know, like with like, you know, like um, <laughs> with strings and yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, like <laughs> right. the old Flash Gordon serials. That's what you you could actually see the wires carrying the rocket ship across the screen. Yeah, 
yeah, when John Glenn's got the fireflies, as he calls them, or the sparks, like, you know, flying around him, which was actually like ice condensate right. on the outside, right. like uh, flaking off and then burning up, which they didn't describe that in the movie. Maybe that's one of those science moments you would have liked to have just mentioned in there. You need Absolutely. Pop-up. You, you, sure. need, you need VH1's pop-up video for the right stuff is what you need. <laughs> um, what I was getting at is this, is this is a pretty movie. It has nice transitions uh, between shots. I mean... And there's moments where the camera lingers on the characters' faces in such a nice way. That weight that Dustin says that he needs, that, that, that despair that you need. I do need the con- it. The camera does good work. The actors are doing good work when that moment, but the camera's doing it in the right way to elevate those moments and send that home to you. So it, it's, a, it's a well-shot movie. Uh, did not win Oscar for Best Cinematography, but rightfully nominated. Caleb Deschanel shot this movie. And I mean, he goes up and he's still working. This guy did ended up doing like in more recent times, like National Treasure, Jack Reacher. I mean, this guy's a A-lister, a heavy hitter. He was actually married to Mary Jo Deschanel, who plays Annie Glenn, yeah. John Glenn's wife and father of actresses Emily Deschanel and Zoe Deschanel. Yeah, this guy made the Mojave Desert look gorgeous. It's a desert. It looks yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to go. I wanted to go. I wanted to go with that cantina, and even though it's just like a you know some plywood slapped together. The happy in. bottom. Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, would, I wanted to go see the wall too. You're right. Like this, this movie romanticized this very well. Oh um, my goodness! When Sam Shepard walks up to the, or sorry, when he rides up on his horse to take a good look at to good gander at the Bell X One. How good is that? That's the past. That's one of my looking at the scenes. future when he. Uh, dismounts, gets off his horse and walks around, or I, I think it actually does he, he rides around, excuse me, he rides around the Bell X-1 for the first time and you have the rocket firing off in the background, you just hear the rumble and it's, you feel it, you can feel it in your soul the power of this like small rocket but you see the sleek nature of it and you're watching through Sam Shepard's reactions and this again is not just a credit to the actor but the camera is capturing it. The lighting is perfect. It's that golden hour. And he's riding around just kind of cozying up to the jet. Kind of first, this is a this is the meat cute, if you will. And it just looking at it and saying, okay, nice to meet you, Bell X1. We're going to be friends and I'm going to ride you and we're going to do great things together. But he has to, has to kind of warm up to it, cozy up to it. It just... And you, you sense there's a relation, a real relationship between the pilot and his aircraft. The Edwards Air Force Base, I like the moment that they did for Trudy. I just said they got done romanticizing other things. Well, they actually did the opposite, too. When they first moved in, it's all like white concrete block walls. It's super harsh, mm. like the rusty water's pouring out of the bathroom. This is not a nice place for your family. And speaking of atmosphere, Russell, yeah, well said. I mean, got the ants on the sink. I love it. It's like the boys get to go play and she's, they've got to stay home. You know, that's where they, she's got to live. Scott Glenn playing Alan Shepard and being the first man into space, the whole sequence where we don't even know who the first American is going to be in space and how that's edited and how they hide his face. And that scene at night when he's first going out to the dock the uh, where the, the, the rocket is, and you hear that there's something in the score and in the sound design where it's a very mechanical thumping. And it's in the background and it's almost as if like this mechanical like heartbeat, but it creates this uh, tense feeling 
and you've got smoke going, you've got cameras going from the, the, the media, and he's you've got hoses popping out of the capsule as he's boarding the capsule. And it's just, it's all atmosphere creating such a feeling of a holy, you know, what moment. Like this is this is yeah. for real, guys, and it's all practical effects too. Like you said, Russell earlier, when it's, it's models and things like that, this stuff looks the so tangible. Are wooden frame sets. That's amazing. So they don't cool. look like it. No. As a tool, the use of that pounding sound while they're on the platform or whatever yeah. it is that they're Thank you, on. thank you. The platform, yes. Uh, that pounding sound, like as a tool, is used again only this time with Shepard in the, or sorry, with Alan Shepard in the mission control when uh, John Glenn is reporting back that he sees all the fireflies. And, and everyone in mission control knows that there's this impending problem with reentry right. and he's going to get burned up. The tool they use there is an incessant high-pitched beeping, as in like an alert sound. He's not currently in an alert situation. What this is doing is it's raising our tension level as the audience that something bad might happen here, and it gets you on the edge of your seat. The choice to add in that beeping sound could be put in anywhere or removed anywhere. Uh, it was just, once again, incredible sound design to add that in to make the tension seem more dire. Yeah, well said. Uh, the other thing is all these, sequ any of the flight sequences, whether it be Jaeger l screaming, and I use that word purposefully, screaming through the air. I love the POV shots, by the way, going through the clouds because you feel like we're in the pilot seat. But it sounds as if the rocket-powered jet fighters are actually screaming. In the music. I mean, oh, yeah. this, uh, Bill the, soundtrack, the soundtrack on this is awesome. Both the, both the instrumental score as well as their inflections of period piece music to add to this too. I mean, uh, that ceremony scene with the dancer and the feathers with the American flag oh, faintly lit yeah. in the background and you know, then flipping over to where Jaeger is at the moment. I mean, it's just... These moments are elevated. Bill Conti's score won the Academy Award for Best uh, Music and Original Score, and uh, it is well-deserved here. It, it, the music is just so powerful to not only anchor you to a time, but to a feeling, and a range of feelings, too. We it's a difficult thing for a composer to do all the things that this movie does, just as difficult as it is for the actors and the directors. This movie does it all. Claude Debussy, was it uh, Claire de Lune during that dance on stage? It sounds uh, right to me. It, if you say I, it more confidently, I'll believe you. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, it was uh, it was Debussy's Claire de Lune that they were doing on stage, and that's uh, often like, this. it's the same music that outside of Ocean's Eleven when the fountains are going up. Um, and what we're realizing is it's kind of like, a, it's a beautiful song, but all the astronauts just kind of look at each other like, Ugh, this is, what are we here for? We're just looking at each other like, is this it? Like they're all thinking about going faster, going higher, pushing the limits more. Um, but I just want to add this one about the soundtrack, which is when John Glenn is going up in his rocket, they start to play Holst's Mars, which is oh my, a, I have it written down right here, Dustin. I love you for saying this. So that yeah, uh, <laughs> they they start to play Holst's Mars, and in my head, I'm sitting here on my couch, and I go, Mars. This is like a song for war. They should really switch to Jupiter. That would be more appropriate. And they do. 
<laughs> they, yeah. After like 20 seconds, they switch to Jupiter when he's actually ascending. I'm like, all right, uh, read my mind. So like, <laughs> might as well give you a half star for that right away. Instant gratification. Now, you guys ready to hand out some awards here? Let's Definitely. MVP, Jason. Has to be Sam Shepard uh, for me. Uh, because upon this rewatch, he was the clear standout. And I think it was through his unspoken performance. It's in his eyes. It's in his facial expressions. It's in his uh, celebratory howls after breaking uh, the sound barrier. It's uh, looking up at the moon, yearning for more, wanting more, wanting to be an astronaut potentially, but uh, it's his simple delivery. It's his, uh, yeah, S Sam Shepard is, uh, I can't under, I just still for the life of me do not understand why he was not another Harrison Ford. The man was so immensely talented because we're talking about a playwright and a director and well i think he uh, had th i think that's it i think he had his eyes set somewhere else i mean he, he's yeah, described yeah. as like uh, as far as modern playwrights the best i think we it was confusing had. for people because shepherd yeah. was jaeger glenn was shepherd and harris was glenn and they got through with this movie and they said get me shepherd and they said glenn no get me get me, get me harris. So true. not harris jaeger. i mean glenn shepherd no John? uh mvp dustin I'm going with uh, Ed Harris as John Glenn. Uh, I feel like when we made our pivot to a uh, movie within a movie, but just the focus on the team, I think that we aren't told that he's like the leader. The, the group, the, the group dynamic kind of raises him up um, in mostly positive, but in the slightly uh, combative way of... Um, you know, when when his character is written to have a moral problem with some of their actions. Uh, but even so, seeing like Ed Harris Young and um, the, the portrayal of this guy who's very clearly a hero um, was really well done. So he's getting my nod. They do set him apart, though. Like they give him like a bow tie, whereas everybody else up there has a straight tie. Everybody else has like dark grays and, and, and navy blues jackets on. He has a very light gray jacket. He's positioned in the center. I mean... There's a lot of, like, they're, they're doing that on purpose to push him forward. Like, there's every little conscious decision is right. focusing you on that. So that's not just you. But like, even that was, before that. Was an intention. That. Yeah, but even before that, it's sort of like when they're going through the trials and they're like, oh, we're competing against uh, um, Archie and Jughead, you know, the, the, the two guys at the end who are like, it's, it's almost as if it's not just us who are being directed it's the group in total is kind of agreeing that this guy is standing up uh, aside from the director's choices i'm with jason on this one with sam shepherd but just for kicks i'm going to just give a nod to dennis quaid as well as as gordon cooper he was a lot of fun in this best supporting actor jason i'm going to go with fred ward as virgil i gus grissom I, I just love Fred Ward. There's something very sympathetic about him as an actor and a character, something relatable, very human, very everyman. Uh, he's got some wonderful lines. He provides some of the comic relief levity in this film. The, the you know, the const his uh, signature phrase, FNA, Bubba, you know, you just can't get enough of that. I appreciate uh, that he said that you could be shorter and be an astronaut. He's a good bit shorter than everybody else in the lineup of the movie. Right, right. But so, he still stands out, you yeah. know. 
No, if I had been, if I had been him on the day of the set, I was like, "Can you give me a box and just shoot us like from the knees up, please?" Dustin, <laughs> 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 uh, who is your best supporting actor? We go with Scott Glenn as Alan Shepard. I, I thought his portrayal was um, now written. The character written wise was a little. I, I don't know if I got right away this um, fascination with this comedic like. Uh, Latino space like spoof spaceman on TV and how much the character liked it um, that he had a sense of humor people would talk to him like they'd call him hombre or amigo like, part of that didn't make sense for me but I felt like his presence uh, kind of owned the screen when he was shown I think he was sort of if 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 John Glenn in this movie is the like the Boy Scout leader then um, to me, like Alan Shepard was kind of like the biker gang street tough leader. Like you need different forms of leadership. And I think that I, for some reason, Scott Glenn, and maybe it's because two years later, Desperado, maybe it's because I most recently saw him in that, but I feel like he's got this kind of rough and tumble um, authority to him. It, it seems like his strength exudes beyond just the character. So uh, for me, it's Scott Glenn. Great choice. And I like the funny guys. I like Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer. For uh, uh-huh. going going and recruiting these guys and being completely out of the element <laughs> and like are, are there snakes here are there uh, or like like vomiting so like like actually wiping vomit off their face on the Ugh. aircraft oh character. that was hard to watch actually <laughs> I just I, I I got a kick out of these guys and when they left the movie I was a little bit sad and like uh, I liked their whole like spiel like uh, there are some men that we think could be good for this application and like. <laughs> absurd like yeah. how do you interview artist. to be an astronaut that was a funny scene in its own right so these mm-hmm. guys were these guys were a lot of fun uh, hidden gem Jason I'm going with Pamela Reed as Trudy Cooper uh, I didn't realize or remember how impactful her role is in this movie and how important it is uh, to I think Veronica Cartwright also is great in this uh as uh, excuse as me, Mrs. Grissom. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Pamela Reed uh, has a little more to do, I think, and it's, uh, I, yeah, I, I, she's she's adorable, and again, I just extremely empathetic, and uh, I, it was something I was just I was much more aware of her and her performance this time around. Kevin Pollak is actually the voice of President Dwight Eisenhower in this movie, so shout out to. Kevin Pollack there. Wow. Yeah. Is that your hidden gem? Is this someone we don't even see? That's right. Nice. Uh, For me, I'm going to stick with the wives. uh, And it was hard not to go Veronica Cartwright for me because I knew that we would bring up. I knew that we would bring up uh, Trudy Cooper. Um, But I'm going to go with Kathy Baker as Louise Shepard. Specifically because I know that face. uh, Like the face I know that from, I think many would know, is from... Edward Scissorhands as being kind of the lusty neighbor. And like to, to me, I mean, she's kind of a pseudo villain in that movie. And I've seen that movie a hundred times. So to see her in a different role, I think this is actually her first role. And to, to have a first role when you're not a young, like completely young star uh, is kind of cool. So that's my hidden gem. Even though uh, I was kind of torn between her and Mary Jo Deschanel as Annie Glenn, I'm going to give the nod to her just because I've seen her in other stuff. And we should mention Veronica Cartwright's yet another Aliens crossover. Yeah, absolutely. So, recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, Jason, who would it be? 
I would probably recast the chief scientist who was played by Scott Beach and he was serviceable. He was fine. Uh, I thought maybe someone with a little more gravitas, you know, I was thinking a couple different names, but I ended up on Max von Sydow, maybe who, who, who played a German officer in Victory, another one of our great 80s sports movies. Uh, He's Father Marin from, uh, the, from uh, the, Exorcist. Uh, the Exorcist. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Old Max Fonsito. So that would have been cool maybe to see him in a scientist role. Dustin, recast. Uh, for, for me, I actually liked how Scott Pauline did Deke Slayton, but mm. I was just thinking of Matthew Modine Ooh. in there. Um, oh, wow. And honestly, because we had, I would say, maybe one totally underused, but maybe two roles in the seven that could have been elevated, I think Matthew Modine's the guy to do it. Um, but it's not like I watched this and said they need it. But um, I actually, if I have to like punch a ticket, I'm going to say I'm going to jump on Jason's choice because that's a great choice. I think Charles Frank as Scott Carpenter gets lost in the mix. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. forgettable. In fact, just by virtue of Lance Henriksen being Lance Henriksen, and even though his role is barely mentionable in the movie, but because that's Bishop, I remember that more. So I'm going to try and remember... Scott Carpenter a little better by putting Kurt Russell in there. Ooh, wow. Nice. Good. Co- that's great. <laughs> well, I want to see Kurt Russell in everything. So, I'm <laughs> yeah, because this movie needs more testosterone. <laughs> there's there's the answer. I asked in the beginning. Yeah. Yes. It did need more and it needed Kurt Russell. Yeah. That's um, the answer. Best shot. Jason. For me, it is Jaeger walking away from the crash. Uh, with his face scarred, literally charred, while he's chewing his Beeman's gum. It's the hero shot. I love it because we all too often see the hero walking like in front of the explosion or from away from a, a crash of some kind. Cool guys don't look at explosions. This is <laughs> That's the rule. This is the best uh, for me. Uh, love love that moment. That's my, my best shot. Yeah. Dustin, best shot. Both of mine are despair shots. Sorry, guys. Uh, this is just bring, what I why don't need. You bring us down a little bit here. This Justin. is just what I absolutely look <laughs> for in movies. Both of mine. Since it was brought up earlier, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss away my my previous choice was Trudy Cooper walking through the very sad house um, with the plane sounds overhead, and she's like, "Oh, this is my life now. I live here." And instead, I'm gonna switch to my my backup, which was when Gus and his wife are embracing in their little bungalow across from the worst beach in Florida. She was the one who was saying, like, the military owes me. The military's got to make good. Um, and obviously Gus is the one who was kind of pegged as, uh, you know, screwing the pooch. And, and he, she didn't get, you know, prior to that that shot, we, she she uh, she didn't get the to meet Jackie O. She didn't get the big fanfare. And so now they're just holding each other, both of them not getting exactly what they wanted out of this. And that's that's the shot that kind of made this a complete experience. Is that wow? This is how and and they've got reporters outside dying to talk to them, but they're just both kind of holding each other in like just a, a little a little bit of a downturn of emotion for the movie. I, I thought it was necessary and and beautiful. Not getting what they wanted out of it is a very good way of putting it, and mm-hmm. that that was palpable there for sure. For me, my best shot is going to be the transition. You have Jaeger, um, he's drinking a glass and a plane is taking off at dawn. And yeah, uh, we, yeah. see, we, see, uh, um, 
we just it's just it's a great cut it's the past moving into the future it's just i mean the horse shot when he was on a horse looking at the plane was good but i like this transition as things just fade out really well so it's a great call i'm a sucker for a good transition yeah I have to say this too. It's tough to compete also with the ultimate hero shot of the Mercury Seven walking down the platform. Mm -hmm. That's probably yeah. the. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that is the shot. That's, that's right? probably the that's shot. That's the one everybody the would. Yeah, yeah, they gotta see. Yes. But when it when it when they kind of move into silhouette though, when they're at the, in the foreground, it's pretty pretty that's tight. Good. It's good lighting for sure. Yeah. Like like you don't just like see their faces like coming at you the whole time. Like I mean, you're right. It's uh, I think every superhero ensemble movie took notes from that and uh, yes. did that. Like if like. The X-Men are walking towards you. I think they took it from this movie. Oh, well, Armageddon is uh, yes. positive, right? Yeah. All right Pro Dustin. Prove me wrong. Yeah. Like, is there, like, do, do, do people dramatically walk towards the camera earlier than this, like this? Is this that, the first that's time a great we do that? Question. This might be the one. This might be where it begins. Write into me and tell me I'm wrong if you need to, but I mean, so. If there's a movie in 1930, clickety-clack, then, you know, then... <laughs> then and the Marx Brothers were working at the camera um, heroically. Um, so, uh, best scene, Jason. Okay, this is interesting because Dustin brought this up earlier and he had a completely different take than I have on this scene. This has always been my favorite scene since I was a kid. When the Mercury 7 have arrived now in Houston towards the end, uh, and it's during the barbecue celebration while the dancer with the uh, the feathered Feathers. fans, uh, the scantily clad dancer is performing. And we have a very flamboyant Vice President Johnson doing a speech, etc. This uh, particular scene being juxtaposed against uh, Jaeger attempting to break the altitude barrier. Uh, but that scene during the barbecue celebration uh, in Texas, in Houston, um, when we have the Mercury 7 seated watching the show, Dustin had a different take on it, uh, which I, th I find fascinating and interesting. Uh, my take on it personally was that each of them during that, the wonderful classical song, I guess Claire de Lune is what we agreed it was, um, yeah. is that we see the connection. This is the, uh, for me, this is my interpretation, is that the Mercury 7, they each feel the weight of the moment. They don't care about the pomp and circumstance. That I will agree with Dustin on. However, they look at each other and understand where they were, where they've come, what this means, and uh, that they just, they, it's a moment, again, I love these unspoken moments, guys. It's just wonderful direction, wonderful acting, and they look at each other and they kind of know. They each have, they all have the right stuff, and they did it together. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think, to be honest, Ocean's Eleven steals that. Yes, they uh, do. Uh, probably unapologetically. It's a good moment to steal. You know, it's, it's the same thing. That's exactly what they do at the end of Ocean's Eleven in front of the fountain, right, guys? I mean, they look at each yeah. other going, hey, we pulled it off. We pulled this off. We did it's it. A, it's a very good scene. Dustin. And they did it their way. Um, right. I, I actually <clears throat> want to talk about that Texas scene just a little bit, just about the things that are accurate, I guess we'll say. Um, uh, LBJ actually went to the school in the, the university in the town that I live, uh, Texas State University at the time known as Southwest Texas State University. He's kind of the big pride of the town I live in. And I love that he's portrayed in such a like kind of comical way in this movie. There's no way they have that much corn. 
uh, for that particular barbecue. Uh, yeah, th they might have steak. It's probably brisket instead. But we all know that a, a cookout like that in Texas is going to have uh, it's going to have onions. It's going to have pickles. It's going to have coleslaw. Uh, there's no way they could grill that much corn. That corn is also obviously very under seasoned. That being said. <laughs> That being said, because because it, it, that's a big white barbecue, also by the way, uh, the only the only Latino we have is portrayed by the great Anthony Munoz, potentially the best offensive lineman to ever play, uh, who is one of the orderlies. Now that I got the Texas stuff out of the way, my best scene is actually the uh, that first press conference with the Mercury Seven, where uh, we're kind of getting a, a like a we're we're smooshing all this stuff together. Of, all right, they've beaten the training; they're all there. And they're all dressed a little differently. Uh, we do get our first like glimpse into John Glenn as like becoming the like the verbal leader. Um, the other guys are like maybe starting to look up to him as this kind of uh, Boy Scout hero kind of guy. Uh, you have the wives sitting there. Uh, you have the media there. Uh, I just thought that was a cool turning point from the movie. Uh, but my favorite is the first press conference. My best scene is actually the same as Jason's, uh, but for diversity's sake, I want to give a nod to. The the German scientists having a showdown with the astronauts of whether they get a hatch or not. It's the moment where mm, the yeah, astronauts establish themselves, come together. This is the uniting thing that Grissom pulls out there and really pulls everybody together when they're kind of very competitive. They're coming from different backgrounds. They're coming from different parts of the country. They're just like, but this, they want to be pilots, not, yeah, not dummies. So. Yeah. Um, that scene Very to scene. me, that scene to me is a funny, but also it's, it's kind of powerful when you actually go back and think about what it does for like, that's the moment they're really galvanizing together. No bucks, no buck Rogers. No buck Rogers. Yeah. Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Jason. I am going to go with our guy, Chuck Yeager. Once again, when he walks out in his flight suit, ready to get onto the jet and break that altitude, uh, altitude barrier, because in the moment in the film, we know he's. He's gearing up for it. And to be completely transparent here, and to be honest, this was not an impromptu moment in, in the actual history. These flights were scheduled and planned, but it's great for drama when we know, we know Jaeger's eye on that record. Uh, so that's my uh, wardrobe moment. That's a great one. Dustin, best wardrobe or makeup moment? I almost went with Jaeger too, but I think for me, it's all the, uh, it's our Mercury 7. Whenever they're in mission control, they're all wearing a very, like, very simple of the time period, like white shirt and simple tie. It's kind of cool to see. This is almost as if, like, they're non active wear because they're in, they're in, like, these uh, space age suits, we'll say most of the time. But, like, when they're just in mission control, they're all just kind of buttoned up, straight laced. Um, some of them do have a different tie, but it, that, that was something that just kind of stood out to me. So that's my choice. Yeah. And, you know, to create those, uh, those uh, astronaut uniforms, they, uh, they they use silver fabric that were leftover materials from the costumes from uh, the singer Cher and her stage props. So, wow, love it. Yeah, yep. If you could turn back time, you Perfect. could be an astronaut. So, Yuck. Um, <laughs> uh, but my moment for this category needs to go to Chuck Yeager's leather jacket. Oh, I mean, of course, jeez, well it's, done, it's, well played. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Is there anything better than? 
just to just make this character? Change one thing, only one thing. I think Dustin's is the barbecue, but Jason, what about you? You know what? I was going to defer to you, Russell, because I have a feeling I know what yours is and I don't want to step on it just in case. So why don't you go if you don't mind? Yeah, yeah. So Gus Grissom's panicking at the landing is something that they made a bold decision and took a stance on. Yeah. And the the this is one of the big things that the Mercury 7 astronauts really didn't like. They criticized the focused portrayal of him uh, like flipping out and as, as he was having a splashdown landing. And historians and engineers uh, who have worked for NASA have since generally considered that the, the explosive bolts were a mechanical function and not an error uh, on Grissom's part. It was left to be murky, and it didn't paint him in the best of lights. And uh, especially given, like Dustin said, they didn't do you right, I feel like that weight comes more if you go ahead and have it be unexpected. And I felt like that part of this movie, luckily it does get lost in the soup because there's so much soup, but um, I, didn't like, I didn't like what they did there. And uh, you know, it's a bold decision to make and it doesn't sound like it was necessarily even an accurate decision to make. So uh, if you were to directors cut this, maybe fix that scene. Couldn't agree more. Uh, with you, Russell. Yeah, I, I, it's unfortunate because I, even as a kid watching this, I felt that entire sequence was gut-wrenching for the character. Uh, it was upsetting, especially then, you know, the scene afterward, and there's just no pomp and circumstance almost for him and they're in the hotel. And, oh, great, we have a stocked fridge. And Mrs. Grissom, you know, Veronica Cartwright, so good at playing that kind of, that type of despair, uh, was just upsetting. And then to find out it's actually not, true to fact according to the research and that they did retrieve the liberty bell that capsule in 1999 which is something we don't think about either something like that sinks to the bottom of the ocean how many miles deep is it and it takes years upon years in order to retrieve that piece of equipment which they finally did in 99 only to cool. prove once again that it that said it chuck was... yeager was here first right <laughs> <laughs> Probably. No handball in this area. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, where are yeah, all those Chuck Yeager type of jokes? The gum from Just Chuck to... Yeager was stuck to the ceiling, and that's how right. we knew he was there. <laughs> but they retrieved, yeah, in 99, they retrieved the uh, Liberty Bell, the Gus Grissom's yeah, capsule, and uh, that to prove that there was a mechanical malfunction. It was not human error. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, and then, of course, it being unfortunate that, you know, Grissom passed away, obviously, uh, before this movie ever came out. So it's, it's, it's a tough look, that part. It is, it is. And we talked about there's inaccuracies abound. This is a bold decision. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. this is not one you want to be wrong on like that. So yeah, Dustin, how about you? Is it, is it too much corn or is there something else you'd rather change? All right, they did show that one plate had a pat of butter on it, but there's absolutely no color on that corn. You want some elote style, a little cilantro, a little cotija cheese. You want a little good corn? And not just butter and salt. That wasn't it. You actually brought it up, Russell. My change one thing. I wrote it. It's, what is it? Five words. Separate this into two movies? Question mark. And I don't know if I love my choice here, but the idea is I, I think... That if we went sort of your trilogy way, where we have like the land, the land or airspeed barrier, then we have getting to space, then we have going to the moon. 
if we could keep this group together and make it work contract style, I think that is wonderful and a box office blowout. I think it's awesome. Instead, what we get are, are two movies that, if we did separate them, I think standing alone, they're not incredible to me. I think this movie is greater than the sum of its two parts, if you were to think of it as two parts, and I do. So if if like if I had to change one thing, I would want just the Chuck Yeager movie, and I would want just the Mercury 7 movie. And these two movies, or the two movies, these two parts really complement each other, and I think are necessary. But uh, I, I think that's my my change. One thing is to uh, pull this out further, perhaps the way that they're doing with this Disney Plus uh, show, um, kind of stretch it out to and then and then segment it, because I, I I think that's kind of would lead to greater success. My change one thing isn't always change one thing to make it more financially successful but i think that would happen with this and i think maybe it would have made its budget if that were the case but um i'm talking a lot about like the the hypotheticals here the counterfactuals still stood up as a great movie i just i think that could be done and you brought it up earlier so i'm going to stick with it jason what's your best quote from this movie it's uh when chuck yeager and his buddies uh i believe they're all still working with the Air Force in some uh, way or another. Chuck Yeager in what seems to be like a break room with his fellows. I think Ridley is there as well, and they're watching the media coverage. And they're having a little fun at the expense of Gus Grissom. And that's when, probably somewhat unexpectedly, uh, because you would think Yeager would kind of join in uh, with the mockery, uh, but he doesn't. He takes the opposite stance, and he says... Uh, because they, excuse me, uh, they, they talk about, uh, well, you know, monkeys could do this job. It's been proven. These, you know, these pilots are just basically test dummies. Oh, I monkeys. see where you're going now. And uh, then Jaeger stands up for all the astronauts and says, monkeys, you think a monkey knows he's sitting on top of a rocket that might explode? These astronaut boys, they know that, see? Well, I'll tell you something. It takes a special kind of man to volunteer for a suicide mission, especially one that's on TV. Oh, Gus, you did all right. That's my best quote right Great. there. Great. Incredible. Good one. Love that one. Dustin, best quote. I, for one, do not intend to go to sleep by the light of a communist moon. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was poetic in the middle of those dark scenes where they're, they're doing the... Uh, the slideshows um, and those scenes are chaotic, which is fun. Uh, you've got one of the senators like crawling around on the floor trying to plug in something. It actually made me laugh out loud when I was watching it. So that's that's mine. Absolutely. Uh, mine's going to be, hey, Ridley, you got any Beamons? <laughs> yeah, I think I got me a stick. Yeah. Loan me some, money. I'll pay you back later. Fair enough. Yeah, it's good. Great stuff. Uh, Love how that's there. repeated throughout. This is the moment where we got to come in onto the fire. But before we give our ratings, Jason, tell people where we can hear more from you on the All 80s Movies podcast. Hey, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do this. You can find the All 80s Movies podcast on our podcast network partner site, Ship It Studios at shipitstudios.com backslash All 80s Podcast, as well as most streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, and so on and so forth. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We do appreciate the support from our listeners and also the podcast community as a whole. And uh, yeah, we hope to return to the favor by having guests on our podcast soon. 
such as yourselves, Russell and Dustin. Whoa, that would be cool. That would be awesome. <laughs> a movie podcast going on another movie podcast? That would be cool. What? Now, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, Jason, I'm putting you in the hot seat. What's it going to be? I'm going for it. I'm going all the way. Oh, I'm pushing wow. the outside of the envelope. I'm going to give it a five. And to think that this film was a bomb, you know... I don't know what that says at this point. Not much to me, personally. It makes sense maybe because of the time, because you have Return of the Jedi coming out this year, uh, Juggernaut. But uh, still, the Academy Awards, the nominations speak for themselves. I mean, eight nominations. It wins four. All well-deserved. Brilliant ensemble cast. I don't think are bad. I just think that they spend yeah. a lot of money, so they have to recoup it. <laughs> That's a good point. Absolutely. Like, uh, I, don't think, I don't think that it actually was... Bad. They just wanted more people to come <laughs> than did. <laughs> true, true. But producer as Dustin, we discussed, producer Dustin the, says, "What if all those tickets were times two? <laughs> there you go. Now we're thinking. But yeah, just to cap it off, my the justification for a five star rating is just from all the technical aspects. This entire film is a balancing act of so many elements, and it does so almost flawlessly. So five stars for me. Great choice, Dustin." Are you going to break through the uh, demon that holds you back at four and a half stars? They, just, they said it couldn't be done. I super enjoyed this movie. And I think the, the movie must exist in the form that it does. It can't be shorter. It must be in this sort of director's cut length. And I'm not going to dock it for its length by itself. But for me, this is a four-star movie. I, in, incredible. Far above average. And a stellar cast. I, I really enjoyed essentially all of the performances. There were a couple things that did leave me questioning. Um, I, I think if it, we, we got enough, we got almost the perfect amount of what I mentioned earlier, like the despair or the not making good or the military owes me, which sometimes we don't get a lot in movies. I, I, th I thought that was that was good. but So I don't think we needed the attention on, we'll say, Gus Grissom's foul up. And, and, and we, we all lingered on that a little bit during the show. Uh, I, also, I also feel as if, like, like I said, the movie has to be in this form that it's in in order to contribute to the meaningfulness of the main focus, which is on the Mercury 7. But I still feel as if this was, would, have, would be better served, separated somehow. Um, and then finally, for all the length they decide to keep in, it ends abruptly, and I'm going to say when, when you throw in a country western voiceover to just end the movie 20 seconds away from a launch, um, it, it seemed as if like, well, we already are in for three hours and 15. Why can't we end this better? Now, I'm, I'm really not trying to hate on the movie that much. It still deserves every ounce of that four star. The things that it... To me, the, the, the ending kind of, um, if you've got all the time and you've got the budget, I, I don't know how it could have been ended better, but to end it so abruptly with voiceover seemed like the work of an inferior director. As if, like, what well, what happened? Who who ended this movie? It wasn't Kaufman. The producer came in and said, Kaufman, you're out of money. <laughs> like, yeah. no, 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 I got a little bit more. You just give me another week. Yeah. Nope, you're out of here. No, I came, right, in, right. I came into the podcast today with four stars. And actually, after talking about it so much, I thought to myself, does, uh, after, after talking about how much I enjoyed it and listening to uh, both of you, I thought to myself, does this bump up to 4.5? And I'm, I'm just going to stick with the four. 
still very Ste enjoyable to watch. Holding, holding steady. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to be at 4.5. And it is probably because this is a new movie to me, because if I have a chance to return to this one again, it's probably going to elevate over time. I, I do think that there are just these little, little things, like, like whether it be the Grissom thing or whether it be um, how the wives are only in service of the, their male counterparts or the, the shift in tone is quite dramatic a number of times throughout this. And these are things that could be alleviated by breaking it up into more movies and just wanting more. I, they left me wanting more, which is something you should do. But um, on the other hand, I wanted so much more that, like you said, Dustin, I, uh, why don't we not just go to the moon or like get it? Like, I mean, I think the Grissom thing needs to be in there. So I, I realize that there's the constraints of what people will sit in the movie theaters. But, you know, if uh, Scorsese can make a four hour long Irishman movie, I'm up, I'm up for it. <laughs> I'll sit through a fourth hour of the right stuff. Absolutely. And I'd rather do that than sit through four hours of The Irishman. Well, it doesn't have to be like a, a series <clears throat> like how we have modern. I mean, I don't know what form it can be in. Like, I, I'm, I'm not offering a solution to my criticism. I'm, I just, uh, whatever it is, it seems It is not like, a 45-minute musical Christmas special, though. I'll tell you that. We'll pass on that. We'll pass on that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's almost hard to put our finger on, but it's, it's something there that like, it could have been more. Gentlemen, I, you know, I was going to, if you'll allow me, I, I think I have to change my rating. I, I think I got a little excited with the five stars. I think I got I to gotta take it back. And it's, if, if this were being rated purely on, on technical, I think I probably would stick with a five. But, uh, you know, I said it myself. I had issues with the Grissom take, the Gus Grissom take. And I do have an issue with the abrupt ending as well. Yeah, I, I have to, I got to, I got to do it. I got to change to 4.5. I got to be able to to look at myself in the mirror here on this. Uh, also, I just want to give a shout out to the Tom Hanks produced limited series from the earth to the moon. If you're looking for an outstanding series, you can watch it right now on HBO max. It's I'm not being paid by HBO max, to say that, <laughs> unfortunately, but I was a huge fan of that series. And if you want to get a oh, real, he appreciates that. He's in, a big fan of the show, Tom Hanks. In, so. Yeah. In depth, uh, look at the Apollo program. You'll get a little more of that. I hand up my five. I hand up my fives a little bit easier, so you're getting no rebuttal from me. I'm not being too harsh on you. I think Ebert gave us his full four out of four and said this was the best movie of the year and one of the top ten movies of the '80s. So you're not out of line. <laughs> Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. So option one is going to be the blow up from 1966. A fashion photographer unknowingly captures the death of a film after following two lovers in the park. Option two. The Conversation from 1974. A paranoid secretive surveillance expert has a crisis of confidence when he suspects the couple he is spying on will be murdered. And option three, Eyes Wide Shut from 1999. A Manhattan doctor embarks on a bizarre night-long odyssey after his wife's admission of unfulfilled longings. Ooh, you had me at paranoid. Option two, The Conversation. All right, and... Thank you, Jason, for coming on the show. We really enjoyed having you here. And everybody go check out his work on the All 80s Movies podcast. It's very enjoyable. Hey, guys, it was a real pleasure. It was nice to meet you both and to be able to, uh, yeah, just to work alongside you. I, you know, would come back in a heartbeat. I love what you do here at the Retro Movie Roundtable. And again, I hope to have you join Bill and I on our podcast someday. And to all the listeners, subscribe, rate, and review. Do all those wonderful things that these really help us out. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. 
at at movie underscore retro and email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better for you, the listener. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? I know very well what you represent. You represent the idiocy of today. You are a part of a league. A league of morons. Oh yes, you see, you're one of the morons I've been fighting my whole life.